0: Hi everyone, this is Jacob from Attention to Detail. Welcome to our first episode where we're gonna be reviewing music from pandemic years. We're starting in the year 1854, and really we've cheated a little bit here because the first pandemic that we're gonna be dealing with here is the worldwide cholera pandemic that that swept the world really from 1846 and continued all the way until 1860. And so, I somewhat conveniently picked a year that I wanted to talk about in the history of music. Apparently there was actually a particularly bad spread of this cholera outbreak in Britain in 1854 called the Broad Street Outbreak or something like that, which apparently was a famous moment in history that I had never heard of before doing research for this. So... Settled on 1854, and 1854 is an excellent year to talk about because it was really a monumental year in the history of music. Just a little of historical context before we jump into our two composers and two pieces of the day. Uh, slightly earlier, in, in the year 1848, there were several revolutions around Europe. 1848 was a huge year of political upheaval and turmoil. And then the years that followed these 1848 revolutions, as so often happens, were a little bit murky in terms of political structure, and a lot of the same monarchical systems that had existed prior kind of came back in in slightly more tenuous forms. That was certainly the case in, in Austria one of the main musical centers of the world at the time. And in Germany, there was this move in the 1848 revolutions for for unification of Germany, and that didn't really happen. You still had some of these divided states in in the 1850s. And in music, this was a real time of activity, of rivaling camps, it was a time of significant progress, and the two main schools of writing, which I think I've mentioned before on this podcast that existed in the 1850s, in one camp you had the radicals, the progressives, they called themselves the New German School. These were composers like Liszt, Wagner, who latched on to the ideas of program music and these massive, expansive ideas for what symphonic, especially music, should be, and this was really summed up by Wagner's writings in the late 1840s and early 1850s, where he was theorizing about one of his essays was called The Artwork of the Future, and so at this time, right in 1853, 1854, Wagner was actually working on and putting the finishing touches on the beginning operas of The Ring Cycle, which would become his his magnum opus and kind of the figurehead for this New German School, his artwork of the future, and at the very same time in Düsseldorf, uh, on the Rhine River, we had a figure named Schumann, who was who had been a successful composer over the past more than a decade, but also a very tumultuous figure. He was the music director in Düsseldorf, and he was a critic as well as a composer. In fact. In his time, I think he was maybe even more well-known as a critic than a composer. Prolific writer on all kinds of music, but a staunch critic of the new German school, and favored the more absolute style of music, we might call it, that was was championed by composers like Mendelssohn, Schumann himself. They thought Beethoven had been effectively an absolute composer, and composers who would come, like our other main feature composer on this episode, Johannes Brahms, and so you had these kind of warring factions in in music, the New German School and the Absolutists, and they had their own kind of uh, supporters and detractors, and in this this one night in eighteen fifty three, this young man named Johannes Brahms came to Dusseldorf and went up to the door of of Robert Schumann and knocked introduced himself and this was a very historic moment in the history of music for so many reasons but Brahms and Schumann would have this incredible connection they barely got to spend any time with each other as we'll we'll discuss but their music was inextricably linked and and tied together in numerous ways, despite them knowing very little of each other, actually. Famously, Brahms was in love with Schumann's wife, Clara Schumann, and she, of course, she loved Robert Schumann very much, but as we'll find out, he, he died shortly after meeting Brahms. And Brahms and Clara both lived long lives, and it's unclear if they ever had a romantic relationship. But these two massive figures in the history of music were, were were very closely linked. And so I wanted to look at a piece of Schumann's and a piece of Brahms's, both from, from 1854, the year that they were with each other, they knew each other. And we'll start with Schumann, because at this point, 1854, we find Schumann in a really, really bad state. Schumann had battled for his entire life what historians now think was bipolar disorder. It's possible that he also had some form of syphilis and, and other illnesses. He was really not in good shape for, for the majority of his life. And so he would go through these periods of, of depression and then these periods of very active writing. But in the 1850s, his, his health was declining even more and he was looking more and more, he was having hallucinations, and it was looking like he would have to be potentially admitted to effectively an insane asylum. And so a lot of Schumann's late works have been critically viewed through the lens of history as lesser works. They're seen as sort of the ramblings of of a madman in a way. People seem to think this about his cello concerto, certainly his violin concerto, his Requiem, some of these late pieces that he wrote. I happen to disagree with this idea. I had a, a professor in college who told me that every note of music Schumann ever wrote was was not only sane but, but masterful, and I, I tend to agree with that. Um, but in any case, maybe I'll contradict myself here in a sec, because in some ways his writing everything that was going on in his life deteriorated. And these are certainly perplexing works from his late, late period. And the work that we're going to focus on today, called The Geister Variations, is actually the last piece that he wrote. It, it's unpublished, meaning that it, did, it never received an opus number. Um, but this is a really incredible piece, and it has an incredible story. That's what I want to talk about today and this story so schumann was having these hallucinations these visions and he he often said that he he had angels and devils speaking to him in these hallucinations these these periods of of mania and he wrote his violin concerto at the end of the year 1853 he was deep in these hallucinations and his deterioration. In the second movement of the violin concerto, I want to play you a small portion of this, and you can listen to this theme, and there's a theme here that isn't quite fully formed, but here's how it sounds in the second movement of the violin concerto. fast forward to february 27th of 1854 and schumann is in really bad shape this is actually it's a it's a tough story to hear so so fair warning this is this is very heavy but schumann was in a really bad state and apparently the legend goes and it's there's conflicting historical accounts But he says he woke up and the angels, his hallucinatory angels, dictated this theme to him. And it's the main theme of the Geister Variations. The Geister Variations are a theme and variations, ghost variations. And they're called that because these ghosts apparently dictated this melody to him. In reality, we can see from the violin concerto, this is a a melody that he had been stewing on for for some months who knows whether this was you know conceived in one of his hallucinatory states or not but in any case the legend goes that he wrote this theme down he wrote the variations. he was composing the variations and then he left his house walked to the Rhine River and threw himself into the Rhine River he was rescued He was taken out freezing cold um, and admitted to an insane asylum after that where he would live out the remainder of what would be a relatively short life. And that was the last thing he wrote. And that that story makes this piece just all the more incredible, chilling, whatever you want to call it. Because I happen to think... This is It's one of the most simple and one of the most beautiful themes ever composed. And it's almost, I struggle to hear this theme and not almost think, you know, this, this was sent down through some incredible force of, of uh, who knows what was going on in his mind, but it's, it's an incredible, incredible, albeit simple theme. The variations, I actually find, this is where I'll contradict myself, it's almost a composer who has resigned himself to the weight of the world and he's kind of almost given up on composing. I don't think it's his most inspired attempt at a set of variations. There are many, many of those in his output. This is not, for me, one of them. But the theme is, again, one of the most beautiful themes ever composed. And so I think we should listen to the whole thing it's it's a minute or so long, but it merits a listen. One of the most beautiful themes Schumann ever wrote, any composer ever wrote. Here's the main theme from the Geister variations. So, as I mentioned, at the same time that Schumann was going through all of this hardship, he's right at the end of his life, Brahms had recently arrived in Dusseldorf. And we have to rewind just a little bit because we go back to 1853 when Brahms met Schumann. He played some of his mu- music for Schumann, and again, Schumann was really the leading critic it, of this absolute school of music which Brahms was very much an admirer of and wanted to be a part of. And so it was natural for him to come to Schumann. And Schumann played some of his music, listened to it, and he wrote a very important article called Bahnen," which means new directions, new paths. Published it in his his paper, his musical paper. And I wanted to read you just a little bit of the translation of this article because he really... Is very uh, praiseworthy of Brahms and recognizes an incredible talent. So he wrote, often from exerted productive activity, I feel stimulated. Some new important talents appeared; a new power in music seemed to announce itself, as shown by many of the high rising artists of recent times, even if their productions are well are known mainly in narrow circles. I thought that it would and that it must be that someone would come along whose very calling would be that which needed to be expressed according to the spirit of the times and in the most suitable manner possible, one whose mastery would not gradually unfold, but like Minerva would spring fully armed from the head of Jupiter. And now he has arrived, a young blood at whose cradle graces and heroes kept watch. His name is Johannes Brahms, and he hails from Hamburg, where he works in dim seclusion, having been educated in the most difficult of the rules of the art by a good teacher. So, very complimentary from Schumann, he identifies Brahms as this prodigious young talent, and the title of this article, Neue Bannen, is important, because he's saying, this composer is going to set us on a new path. Not the new path of the new German school. But a different new path, an absolute new path. In fact, he mentions that at the end. He's been educated in the most difficult of the rules of the art by a good teacher. And this absolute school was really rule-bound in a way. They were the more conservative of the two. They felt that you should study music theory and write in this in the style that had been set up before. By all means expand the scope. That's what Beethoven did, that's what Mozart did, but all of these composers who came before them learned music theory similarly, they learned the rules of counterpoint similarly, and Schumann, Brahms, Mendelssohn, they were all believers in this. So what was this new path that Brahms set out? Well, I mean, he was a phenomenal composer, and we know that from so many of his works, But at this point, he was very early in his career, and he was still a young romantic. He was immersed in the work of Goethe, and especially Werther, this highly romantic work of literature, and he had come, as Schumann mentioned, from cold, windy Hamburg, this kind of oppressively gray place, happens to be one of my favorite cities in the the entire world, I've actually been lucky enough to visit both Hamburg and Dusseldorf, see the homes, the original homes of both Brahms and Schumann. So I've gotten to see the exact meeting place of these two composers. A very exciting experience for me. It's just a door with a tiny little plaque that says, Robert Schumann lived here, but, but that's the door that Brahms came up and knocked on. That's the door that Schumann exited and walked just a few steps down to the Rhine. I've done that same walk, so for me it was exciting, although for most people I imagine it's nothing more than a plaque on a door. In any case, so this new path that Brahms was setting out on, young romantic, and very different from that of Wagner. So he was going to write music that stayed in the forms that had been set out before. So sonata, concerto, symphony, piano trio, string quartet, string quintet. These were forms that Mozart had written in, Beethoven had written in, Schumann had written in, Mendelssohn had written in. So Brahms was going to stay within these forms. But within these forms, this new path was going to be a romantic path, a path infused with greater exploration of harmony, greater levels of expression. And in Brahms, especially in early Brahms, we see this really strikingly. Late Brahms, he retreated to an even more conservative academic style, but early Brahms, an outpouring of Romanticism. And one of his best pieces ever, For in my estimation, one of the greatest pieces of chamber music, one of the greatest pieces ever composed, is his first piano trio, the B Major Piano Trio. It's basically his first foray into the world of chamber music. And this is an incredible, incredible piece. If you happen to listen to our chamber draft, this is a piece that I gave an 102 to on our chamber music draft, and I had no reservations about that. It's, it's one of my absolute favorites. So I'm glad to highlight it here. And it starts, we see, from the very outset. What we usually expect in a first movement, which we get, is what's called a sonata form. And we have two contrasting themes standardly the first theme is the more aggressive the more domineering theme the second theme is the more intimate and sensitive theme but that's not what we get from Brahms we still get two themes we get all the same formal devices but listen to this first theme it's the complete opposite of a classical first theme just be the greatest first theme ever composed. It's a phenomenal opening to the trio, this massive cello solo. But as you can hear, hyper-romantic. This is not a tempestuous movement. It's not a tempestuous theme. This is lyrical to the max. And most of this movement unfolds in that way. The second theme wanders a little bit. But what we have is a very standard form with very unstandard language for the time. Highly romantic language. This is a fantastic movement to listen to. And I wanted to play you one more excerpt from this movement towards the very end where this theme comes back. I only want to play this because it's such a magical moment. But the coda of this first movement, the ending, the last three minutes or so, is some of the most magical writing in all of Brahms, I think. And to do it at such a young age and so early in his output, kind of incredible. So here's a little bit from the end of this first movement. to go listen to the whole first movement and this the rest of this ending because it's just it's incredible music so then we get a scherzo scherzo was introduced by beethoven before that it was a minuet but again a very standard form i want to play for you the opening of of this scherzo it's a little bit demonic a little bit sneaky as we would expect from from many scherzi of the time so here's the opening of of the second movement of this trio So this is a fantastic opening to the scherzo and I love this movement because it, it creepily wanders around like that. But this is maybe not where we see the Noyaban and the New Path so much as in the Trio section. Scherzos generally have trios. They go A, B, A. Trio is not... It, it's, it's a historical name and it doesn't relate to three in any way. It's just the B section of the scherzo. And it's meant to be contrasting but it's not always meant to sound like what you're about to hear, which is the trio of this movement, where we go back to the key of the first movement, this B major. An interesting key choice in and of itself that I didn't mention earlier, but the fact that he wrote his first piece in B major, this is, this is kind of a rarely used key by Mozart, Beethoven. But Brahms' first piece is in this this distant key of B major, We go back to it for this trio section and we get so much of the lushness of that first movement. A beautiful, beautiful trio section to this movement. Here's how that sounds. I think this this podcast episode might take the cake for for best musical examples. It's just a tour de force of of some of the best writing. This is why I think Brahms and Schumann are two of the greatest composers who ever lived. It's just this is beautiful music, incredible to think that it was all written in the same year. And then we get to see one other really interesting element, not so much of the Neuabanen, but of what would become become Brahms's consistent problem or a, an interesting aspect of his development as a composer, which was his approach to finales. And the finale movement was really an elusive one for Brahms. And here we see the weight of composers like Beethoven and Mozart, who had come before him. Mozart could write some incredible finales. He wrote this massive fugue at the end of his 41st, the Jupiter Symphony an incredible, incredible finale movement. And Beethoven had so many incredible finale movements. The Fifth Symphony, the Third Symphony, the Seventh Symphony, the Ninth Symphony, Surely the Ode to Joy. And this idea of a finale, closing a massive work, tying the cohesion together, this was a challenge for Brahms. And they kind of had this idea, you know, pieces... In this, this tradition are usually four movements, if they're symphonies or quartets or trios. But there's supposed to be some cohesion, and the finale should tie together the work in some way. If not thematically, then at least kind of narratively or, or in, in some manner. And Brahms really struggled with this, and so he wrote... He kind of experimented with finales. A lot of them didn't work. He did some of that in his piano concerti, um, trying out different things. This is part of the reason why he held off publishing a symphony until much, much later in life, because he really, really wanted to fine-tune his finale. And the finale of the first symphony is one of the greatest finales ever composed, but it took him a long time. And we certainly see that in this This first piano trio. It's the only movement of the piece that I don't absolutely love. And it's a little perplexing to me. This piece unfolds entirely in B major. It sticks very almost exclusively to that key compared to most pieces. Usually the second, third movements would be in a totally different key. And they wouldn't keep coming back to B major as this piece does so it's all centered on this idea of b major which has a particularly kind of optimistic uplifting sunny tone to it and yet the the final movement is in b minor this kind of pessimistic brother of of b major and the the piece ends in b minor you you'd maybe think okay we'll do the finale in B minor to start, and then it will get transformed to B major again, so that we end cohesively in this same tone that we set out with. But it ends in B minor kind of perplexingly. And so I've always been stumped by this this movement. Maybe that's not such a problem, because Brahms himself, I think, was was stumped with the concept of the finale. But in any case, let's listen to a little bit of the beginning of this this finale very different music from so much of the lyricism and and kind of indulgence of the first three movements So if anyone can explain to me this finale of the trio, I would I would love that. Please, please uh, send us a message at attention to detailpod.com. But this is one that has always perplexed me. It's a challenge because so much of the trio is is in this one tone and it ends very differently, this kind of breathless, turbulent subject of the last movement. But in any case, a phenomenal trio and living up to the expectation that Schumann had set out in his article of Neubahn and of this new path. That new path really demonstrated in this trio through this kind of romanticization of classical form. It's something that Schumann did to a certain extent, but Brahms really took it to the next level, especially in his early works like this. So 1854, a monumental year in the history of music, what would come after for the new German school and for Brahms and Schumann. We'll have to wait to find out. Our next uh, pandemic year will be, we'll skip ahead about about 30 years. I don't actually know that we'll be reviewing Wagner and Brahms, but we've got some other fantastic composers on tap. And in any case, this is a ideological split that would continue for for many, many, many years, and so we'll touch on it again in some future pandemic years as well. But as always, I'd encourage you, if you haven't yet listened to the intro to this series, that's also maybe worth doing, because as I mentioned in there, and I'll just briefly mention it here as well, the point is not to say that these works, as you noticed, the, the, the cholera epidemic played no role, really, in either of these works. And that is, as far as I can tell. And uh, that is not what we're trying to comment on in this series. The idea is that musical history kind of progresses at its own speed, on its own time, and is somewhat divorced from, from world events. And so we're using these, these pandemic years as springboards to look at some incredible music, but yeah, if you're wondering why why we're doing this and and why we didn't really touch at all on on the idea of, of of a pandemic, I'd encourage you to listen to that that opening episode, the intro to this series. But we will be back soon, reviewing another monumental year in the history of music. Skip ahead about thirty plus years, and we'll get some incredible music on that one too. In fact, we will see our friend Johannes Brahms back to review one of his last works. We just reviewed one of Schumann's last works. Now we'll do one of Brahms's last works as well as some other incredible music. So as always, thank you for joining us. Thank you for sticking with me so late. I'll I'll tell you that we're wrapping up recording here at 12:20 a.m. I think this is a first or second maybe for attention to detail that we've bled into the next day. But thank you to our listeners for sticking with us to the end of this episode and we will see you back shortly.